Hey everyone, with the passage of the CARES Act, I wanted to spend today's episode talking about the key provisions that will impact you personally and professionally, whether you work for someone or are a small business owner. Also, with the rampant volatility in the investment world right now, I wanted to share four common investor mistakes and how to avoid them. For all the resources, calculators, and documents listed, please head on over to utterlyfinancial.com backslash five. That's utterlyfinancial.com backslash five. Welcome to SLP Money, an in-depth conversation for speech, language pathologists, and private practice owners on how to break through to the next level of your career and business. Join your host, Craig Goldslager, a financial planner and certified exit planner, as he shares strategies and stories that will help you become more financially confident and better invest your time and money. You can learn more and stay up to date at utterlyfinancial.com. Hello, SLP Nation. I received a lovely email from a listener to the show last week, and they referred to themselves as a loyal member of the SLP Nation. So I thought I'd roll with that tonight in the intro. And thank you all for your feedback so far on the podcast. Uh, It's great to hear from some listeners. And I know many of you are overwhelmed right now learning teletherapy, as that will be the primary way many of you see your caseload for the indefinite future at this point. So what I want to do tonight was talk about something that is impacting all of you directly, and that is the passage of the CARES Act, which stands for the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security, acronym CARES Act, was signed into law by the president on Friday, March 27th, 2020. And what this does is it provides approximately $2.2 trillion, with a T, dollars towards individual households, small businesses, large corporations. What's important is how it impacts you directly. There are five key provisions that I'll be talking about tonight that range anywhere from helping individual households all the way up to small business owners if you happen to be a private practice owner. Before I talk about the first topic, I do just want to provide an update from our last episode. The IRS did go ahead and move the 2019 tax holiday from April 15th to July 15th. So if you were concerned about speaking with your CPA or filing your own taxes within the next few weeks prior to the filing deadline, that has moved again from April 15th to July 15th. So jumping into the first provision of the CARES Act that according to the Tax Foundation will benefit over 90% of taxpayers are economic rebates. That's a fancy way of saying a check will be delivered to you by the Treasury Department. To help stimulate the economy, the Treasury Department is going to issue you a one-time payment of $1,200. So depending on your 2019 tax filing status, you'll be entitled to additional money in addition to that $1,200 check. So if you're married and file a joint return, for instance, you'll receive an additional $1,200 check for your spouse. Also, for each child who qualifies for the tax credit, another way of measuring that is if they're under the age of 17, you get an additional $500 per child. So for instance, if a married couple has three children aged, let's say 12, nine, and seven, they will earn a stimulus check of $3,900, $2,400 for the married couple, and $1,500 for their children. Unfortunately, though, there are stipulations attached to determining the size of the check you will receive. Your payment will be reduced if your adjusted gross income, or your AGI, 
is above certain thresholds. So again, that depends on how you filed your taxes for 2019. If you married filing jointly, you'll receive a full stimulus check if your AGI is below $150,000. If you filed as the head of household, you'll receive a check for having an AGI less than $112,500. And if you're any other type of filer, like a single filer, you'll receive the full stimulus check if you have an AGI of less than $75,000. That ranges all the way up to if you have an AGI above a certain threshold, you'll receive no stimulus check. So again, going over those three major types of tax filing statuses, if you're married filing jointly and your adjusted gross income was above $198,000 for 2019, you will not receive any stimulus check. If you file as the head of household and your check is above $136,500, you will not receive a check. And if you are any other filer, like a single filer again, you won't receive a stimulus check if your AGI is above $99,000. Now, you might be wondering what happens if I fall in that range where I talked about if I have an AGI below a certain level or above a certain level. So I'm just going to pick an example of one filing status here. So let's say I'm married filing jointly and my adjusted gross income for the household is $160,000. So it falls in between that range of $150,000 and $198,000. What the Treasury Department has determined that for every $100 of additional income above the $150,000 threshold, your stimulus check will phase out by $5. Without going into a lot of mathematical calculations, if you head on over to utterlyfinancial.com backslash five, Kiplinger has put together a really nice calculator to help you estimate the size of your rebate. So you can head on over there and estimate if you fall within that range, again, of having an AGI that is above the full stimulus check size and below the AGI size for not receiving a stimulus check. Some questions you might be thinking about right now as you're listening. Well, what if I haven't filed my 2019 taxes yet? How will the Treasury Department determine my adjusted gross income? They'll look at last year, your 2018 filing to use that number. So depending on your situation, it might behoove you to actually not file your taxes yet. You might receive a larger check basing the stimulus payment off of your 2018 adjusted gross income rather than your 2019 adjusted gross income. Uh, Another question is, you should expect to receive payment according to the Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, within about three weeks. So if you file electronically your tax return, you should receive a direct deposit directly into your checking account. If the Treasury Department and the IRS do not have your checking account information on file, they will go ahead and send you a paper check in the mail. Either way, you should receive notification from the Treasury Department about two weeks prior to receiving the check. They'll go ahead and send you a notification of how they intend to give you the distribution. So while receiving a one-time stimulus will help your checking accounts, If you find yourself needing additional cash at this time, the second provision of the CARES Act that I want to discuss is taking a coronavirus-related distribution from a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k or a 403b, some type of employer-sponsored plan. If you take a distribution, you can take up to $100,000 from your IRA or your 401k as a coronavirus-related distribution. If, if it's made in 2020 and you've been impacted by the coronavirus. 
So in the legislation, there's a wide array of reasons why someone could take a distribution or a coronavirus-related distribution. So for instance, if you were diagnosed, your spouse or a dependent was diagnosed with COVID-19, you could take one of these distributions. If you experience adverse financial consequences, maybe you were placed on furlough or you were laid off or you've had your hours reduced, that would qualify for one of these distributions. Maybe your childcare situation was closed down and so either you or your spouse are unable to work because of a lack of childcare, that would qualify for one of these distributions, as well as owning a business that has either closed or starts operating under reduced hours. So if you qualify for any of those provisions. There are others that I didn't mention, but those are just four examples of reasons why someone would take one of these distributions from a qualified plan. And so if you do decide to take a distribution from, let's say, your IRA, there are some tax benefits that you will be afforded that you would typically not be if you took a distribution from this plan in a, in a typical year. So for instance, you'll be exempt from a 10% early withdrawal penalty if you're under the age of 59.5. That's a huge change from a typical IRA distribution. In a normal year, if you're under the age of 59.5, you do have to pay the 10% penalty for accessing money in a qualified plan. That will be waived as a coronavirus-related distribution. Secondly, you won't be subject to a mandatory withholding requirement of 20% federal tax. Oftentimes, when you take a distribution from a qualified plan, especially an employer-sponsored retirement plan, you have to withhold taxes because the government wants to make sure they're getting their piece of the distribution. You'll not have to do that in this case. Also, if you take a withdrawal from the IRA, you do have the ability to repay it over a three-year period, either in a single payment or multiple partial rollovers. Normally, if you take a withdrawal, the money comes out and you're not going to put it back in, or there's many other complicated ways to put it back in. In this instance, you have a three-year window in which to refill your qualified plan if you choose to do that. And number four, while you still are subject to paying income tax on the distribution, you can spread this over a three-year period. And a friendly reminder, I'm not a CPA, I'm not an accountant, but this is a key instance where planning comes into play. Determining if you decide to pay the income in a one-year period or stretch it out over three years can make a big difference in the amount of tax you pay as a result of taking the distribution. So a lot of those apply to both IRAs, personally owned retirement plans, like a SEP IRA. If you do have an employer-sponsored plan, like a 401k or a 403b, two things that you should note. Typically, you can take a loan on your plan of up to $50,000. Right now, you can take a loan of $100,000. So if you want to access the money via a loan, as opposed to a withdrawal or a distribution, you can do that up to $100,000. And you can also delay the repayment of the loan for up to one year. Typically, once you take a loan from an employer-sponsored retirement plan, you have to start making loan paybacks from your next paycheck. You can delay that up to one year under the coronavirus-related distributions part of the CARES Act. So moving on to provision number three, what this part of the CARES Act discusses is unemployment benefits and who's eligible, what type of compensation you should be looking to receive if you are unemployed. Part of the CARES Act allocated $250 billion to unemployment benefits for all types of Americans who lost their jobs 
completely unexpectedly. So one of the benefits of the CARES Act is it extends unemployment insurance to workers who usually aren't eligible for such benefits, especially at a state level, as long as your unemployment is connected to the coronavirus outbreak. People who typically wouldn't receive unemployment benefits would be part-time employees, freelancers, independent contractors, gig workers, or the self-employed. I would encourage you to go to your state unemployment department and apply if you meet the criteria to apply. Some of the benefits that you might expect to receive, the federal government will be providing $600 a week for individuals who are eligible for this unemployment insurance. So the federal assistance will complement the existing state unemployment benefits, um, which is typically a percentage of your previous salary while you're employed. The federal government will be providing that $600 weekly payout up to four months. So that takes us through July 31st of 2020. The CARES Act will also extend your state level unemployment insurance for an additional 13 weeks. Most state unemployment benefits last for 26 weeks, but by extending an additional 13 weeks, the benefits will increase to 39 weeks. So 39 weeks from the passage of the bill on March 27th will take us through the end of the year, through December 31st, 2020. The bill also incentivized states to pay out unemployment benefits as early as possible. So the federal government will cover the first week of benefits for the states. Typically, there's a one-week waiting period before awarding unemployment insurance. So the federal government really wants to step up to the plate and offer assistance to the states to help subsidize the massive amounts of unemployment benefit claims that are expected to occur over the next few weeks. One last question regarding unemployment benefits. Let's say you recently switched hospital groups. You went to work at a new hospital from an old hospital, or you left a private practice and started working in a SNF. Name the example, but Typically, you wouldn't qualify for unemployment benefits if you had an insufficient work history. The CARES Act effectively waives work history requirements and allows you to start receiving unemployment benefits should you qualify. For all the reasons mentioned in this section, take a look at your state's unemployment benefits department and send an application, again, if you feel like you should be collecting on some of these unemployment benefits. Provision number four of the CARES Act, I'm going to roll this into sort of an others category. If you're taking required minimum distributions or RMDs from an IRA or an inherited IRA, those are paused for 2020. So typically you are required to take a portion of a qualified account. If you are subject to required distributions from those type of accounts, again, those are paused for 2020. If you do have student loan debt, required payments on federal student loans are suspended through September 30th of 2020. So during this time, no interest will accrue on the debt. However, while required payments are suspended, voluntary payments are not prohibited. So by default, payments will continue unless you take proactive measures to contact your loan provider and go ahead and pause those payments. The fifth and final provision of the CARES Act that I want to talk about is what happens for small business owners and private practice owners. The CARES Act is going to allocate $350 billion to aid small businesses across America. Back in episode four, we talked about how to apply for a disaster recovery loan from the SBA. What the CARES Act provides is something called a Paycheck Protection Program. PPP for short. And so if you are a small business owner with a payroll and a staff, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce put together a really nice four-step guide to determine 
if this is something you should do for your small business. Step one is to determine if you are eligible for a loan. And so if you are a small business with fewer than 50 employees, if you are a small business that would otherwise meet the SBA standard, you typically will be eligible for one of these Paycheck Protection Program loans. What's important to note in step two is what the lenders will be looking for. So the lenders will ask you in good faith certification if you were in operation prior to February 15th of 2020 and had employees for whom you paid salaries and payroll taxes, including independent contractors. What they want the good faith certification is, is if you are so devastated by the current economic conditions that the loan is necessary to keep your business ongoing. So the borrower does not necessarily have to have an application pending for a loan through the SBA right now. This might be an additional loan that you're seeking. Important that the lender will not be looking for collateral on this type of loan, and a personal guarantee is not required. Oftentimes on an SBA loan, you will have to pledge certain forms of collateral or personal guarantees to sign off and support the loan request. Neither a personal guarantee nor collateral will be required for a payroll protection program. Step three, determining how much you can borrow. So loans can be up to two and a half times the borrower's average monthly payroll cost, not to exceed $10 million. So you might be wondering, how do I calculate my average monthly payroll costs? Well, it's going to be the sum of all of your included payroll costs minus the sum of your excluded payroll costs, and that will determine your payroll costs. And again, you get two and a half times that number. What is included? For employers, it's the sum of payments or compensation with respect to an employee's salaries or wages. That includes cash tips or the equivalent thereof. What's also important to note is for sole proprietors, independent contractors, and self-employed individuals, the sum of payments of any compensation to income of a sole proprietor or independent contractor is a wage, commission, income, etc., or similar compensation in the amount that is not more than $100,000 per year. So the purpose of this PPP loan is to provide for those on your payroll who earn less than $100,000. So that's one of the main exclusionary items of your payroll costs. You also have to exclude any payroll taxes, or income taxes, and any compensation for an employee whose principal place of residence is outside of the United States. So one of the main reasons to consider this type of loan as opposed to a standard SBA disaster loan is that the borrower is eligible for loan forgiveness equal to the amount the borrower spent during an eight-week period beginning on the date of the origination of loan. So some of the things that you'll be eligible to have forgiven include payroll costs, which we just talked about the calculation, interest on the mortgage obligation incurred in the ordinary course of business, rent on a lease, payments for utilities like electricity, gas, water, etc., and for borrowers with tipped employees, additional wages to pay those employees. So the loan forgiveness cannot exceed the principal, but it is a tremendous opportunity to continue and sustain your business operations, at least for the next eight weeks in order to have all of those different expenses forgiven. Now you might be thinking, if this sounds too good to be true, understand that there is a catch. In order for the expenses that I just mentioned to be forgiven, the private practice or business must maintain the same number of employees or equivalent employees from February 15th of 2020 through June 30th of 2020, as it did during either the same period last year or from January 1st, 2020 until February 15th, 2020. To the extent that this requirement is not met, the amount of eligible for forgiveness will be reduced in a phased out manner, similar to how you'll be receiving your check stimulus if you fell in that adjusted gross income gap that I mentioned earlier. Bottom line, if you want to 
have access to capital to continue having your therapist on staff, you should look into this paycheck protection plan. Again, if you head on over to utterlyfinancial.com backslash five, the Chamber of Commerce put together a really nice PDF summarizing this provision of the CARES Act. More legislation, more information will be rolling out and more interpretations of the act will be forthcoming over the next days and weeks. So if you've been weary about maintaining staff, letting staff go, putting staff on furlough, this is a way for you to continue the business and operations for the next at least eight weeks if your situation warrants that. In addition to the CARES Act, we've been having a lot of conversations over the past few weeks regarding the volatility of people's investment portfolios, The stock market is on every channel on TV, whether you're watching local news or cable news or really any website, social media, you're being bombarded and perhaps overwhelmed by all types of information. And what's happening, whether you realize it consciously or subconsciously and don't realize it, is that when you see all this information, it causes you to make action. And maybe that action is logging on to your investment portfolio or your 401k to see the balance. And all of a sudden the balance isn't what it was a month ago or a few weeks ago. And that's causing an additional set of actions. Maybe it's changing up your investments. Maybe it's hitting the sell button. Maybe it's hitting the buy button. Whatever it may be, it is causing you to act. What I wanted to conclude tonight with are four common investment mistakes that we see many investors succumb to in situations like this. Hopefully, you'll be able to prevent making some of these mistakes as market volatility continues to occur. So common investing mistake number one is trying to time the market. What we know is that financial markets are remarkably steady over long periods of time, but there are sharp short-term movements in security pricings, especially when there's something like the coronavirus pandemic going on. So when you witness the market making big point swings, maybe it's up the Dow Jones industrial average is up a thousand points one day and down a thousand points the next day, it can be awfully tempting to try and time the market. So what that means is attempting to buy or sell based on the direction the market may be headed. So choosing the ideal moment to buy or sell is extremely difficult because you have to make two decisions. One, when do I sell and get out of the market? And two, when do I buy and get back in? Investors who attempt to do that may end up missing periods of exceptional returns. So if you looked at historical returns of the stock market from 1989 until 2019, so a 20-year period, you had the opportunity to be invested for 7,559 days during that time period. If you had done nothing and you stayed invested for those 20 years, you would have had an average annualized return of 10%. If you tried to time the market, jump in, jump out, and you missed the 10 best days during that 20-year period, your average annual rate of return would have dropped from 10% to 7.5%. If you felt the urge to jump in and out even more frequently, and let's say you missed the 20 best days of that 20-year period, your average annual return would have dropped from 10% to 5.7%. So about 57% of the return you would have gotten Said another way, you would have lost 43% of your returns over that 20-year period by trying to jump in and jump out of the market. If for some reason you felt the urge to continue doing this and you missed the 40 best days of investing over that 20-year period, your average annual return would have gone from 10% to 3%.
So the story just gets worse the more you try and time the market and the more you try and jump in and out. Investment mistake number two that we see is assuming past performance will guarantee future results. If you look at the bottom of your investment statements, maybe your 401k statement or your brokerage account, there'll always be fine print on any marketing material from an investment services company. It will always say past performance does not guarantee future results. The reason why it says that is because it's true. And what happens is if you looked at a listing of mutual funds or electronically traded funds and ranked them based on historical performance of three year, five year, 10 year period returns, it would provide little insight into future performance. So sometimes investors feel that they need to invest in the latest, hottest fund or stock and sell whatever your existing portfolio is to buy that fund. Well, that's not really a reliable method for investing. And you might end up selling when you should be buying and vice versa. So for instance, if you looked at the top 25% of mutual funds from the five-year period of 2009 to 2013. So we're talking about the top quartile, the top 25%. What would happen is over the next five-year period from 2014 to 2018, only 12% of those stocks in the top quartile would remain in the top quartile. 19% of those mutual funds would go to the second quartile, 20% would go to the third quartile, and 22% would go to the fourth quartile. Adding up all those percentages, you might be wondering, well, didn't that only add up to 73% of all the investments or mutual funds in the top quartile? And that's true. The other 27% of mutual funds that were in the top didn't even exist five years later for whatever reason. So oftentimes, if you're investing in a mutual fund that is a consistent top performer, maybe they're doing something and following trends doing something that would not allow them to continue being a top performing mutual fund. So if that's the case, you want to make sure that you're investing across a broad spectrum of different types of mutual funds. Investing mistake number three that we often see is outliving your savings or your assets. The average life expectancy of especially Americans is one of the most important factors in planning a successful retirement. And most retirees, we find, vastly underestimate how long their retirement will last. So historically, people were planning on having maybe a 20-year retirement. If I retire to age 65, I need my money to last to age 85. Well, with the advent and innovations in healthcare, what we've seen is that that life expectancy curve continues to stretch out into your 90s and even hundreds. A married couple, let's say the married couple, each spouse is age 65, there's actually a 50-50 shot that one of them will live to 90. So what we know is that if you live to age 65, it's likely that you will continue on a healthy life. And so you need your money to last for 30, maybe even 40 years. It's important to consider how your investment strategies will last over a period of time. And so some of the factors that go into that are determining withdrawal rate, how much of your investment portfolio can you live off of annually? What type of investments should I be invested in? Can I be conservative? Do I need to be more aggressive? So figuring out the appropriate investment mix and strategy to last for you and your spouse's lifetime. Or maybe you have a legacy that you wanna leave to your children and your grandchildren. So figuring out a way to optimize the length of your investment portfolio, really important. So. Again, mistake number three, underestimating your savings and potentially outliving your assets. Investment mistake number four 
ignoring the power of diversification. So individual asset classes go in and out of favor over time. An asset class can be very broadly a stock or a bond. And let's pick stocks. Within stocks, there's a lot of subcomponents or sub-asset classes. You have your large cap stocks. Think of your large national corporations like Apple or Exxon. You also have mid-cap companies, which are smaller size, and then something called small cap companies, which are even smaller in size. You also have domestic U.S. stocks. You have international stocks. You have emerging market stocks. And so what we know is that year over year, whichever asset class or sub-asset class performed the best in one year will most likely not perform the best the next year. The way to handle that is to diversify and own some large cap U.S. stocks, some large cap international stocks, own some bonds in your portfolio. And so there's a mixture of all these different asset classes, which will give you better returns and help cushion against some of the market volatility, especially with what we're seeing in today's environment and market. We're all about taking action on this podcast. And so I want to leave you with three things to take action on. Number one, with all of the hardship going on, maybe your hours were reduced at work. Maybe your state has issued a stay at home warning. And so your caseload has dropped dramatically. There is an unprecedented amount of ways to access capital right now, whether it's from a retirement plan, if you're a small business owner or self-employed, it's accessing money from the SBA, either through a disaster loan or the paycheck protection plan that we discussed earlier. Think about the different resources available to you and have access to that cash. What makes the most sense for your situation? Action item number two, if you find yourself logging into your brokerage account or your 401k plan at work, what I would encourage you to do instead of logging in, walk into the room next door and talk to your spouse or your kids and see what's going on in their world. Pick up the phone and call a friend. Heck, you can even pick up the phone and call me and explain to me why you decided to log into the account and look at the current balance or the balance over the last week or change the asset allocation and the amount of stocks you have, the bonds you have. Those are some of the common mistakes that we just talked about a few minutes ago. It's extremely normal to want to log in and look at these accounts, but what I'm trying to instill into you is to change your triggering events and change your outcomes and Hopefully by engaging in your family, engaging in your financial advisor, if you work with one, to make sure that you don't make some of those common investor mistakes that we just talked about. And action item number three, stay safe, wash your hands. And if you have any questions about anything mentioned in the episode today, please feel free to contact our office. We're fully operational during this time. If you have any questions and want to run ideas or specifics regarding your situation, please feel free to reach out to us and have a conversation with you to see if we can lend our expertise to your situation. Thanks so much for tuning in and I wish everyone health, happiness, and look forward to talking to you again soon uh, on our next episode. You've been listening to SLP Money, hosted by Craig Goldslager. Want even more ideas on how to make smart financial decisions? 
head on over to the Learning Center at UtterlyFinancial.com, where you'll find more information for SLPs and private practice owners. While there, you can also schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with Craig. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, which will help more people discover SLP money. Thanks so much for listening. Materials discussed is for general and informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investing advice. While the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations may vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Craig Goldslager is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. OSJ, 2 South Biscayne Boulevard, Suite 1740, Miami, Florida, 33131, 305-371-6333. Securities, products, and services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC, financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York, PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Utterly Financial is not affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Craig Goldslinger does not maintain specialized license or qualifications for the financial services provided to speech language pathologists and private practice owners professionals. California Insurance License Number OK78754 2020 93204 EXP 122.